by the end of his presidency, George W. Bush is very, very unpopular. Um, and America is pretty tired of this war. Um, and the 2008 election seems like the chance for the Democrats to take it back. And almost everyone expects that it's going to be Hillary Clinton, um, who has been like laying the groundwork since becoming a senator right at the end of her husband's term to run for president and has been building this coalition of Democratic Party officials who are going to support her. And yes, she voted for the war in Iraq, but we can get around that. But there's this guy <laughs> who gave a speech at the 2004 convention for John Kerry um, that electrified people. And now he's been in the Senate um, for four years, not a very long time. Before that, he was a state legislator. And Barack Obama fits the mood of a lot of people in the country who are really worn down by Bush, Clinton, Bush, and the idea that you'd go back to another Clinton at that point, and they really want a different, fresh start. And he runs this campaign based around the idea of change. And young people um, are drawn to this idea that it's a new generation, and people are excited by the idea that he'll be the first black president. And he is so fascinating because he, as, and this is what his whole speech was about, right? Is, the, is about who he is. He is a black man raised by white people, partially in Hawaii, but also partially all over the world. Um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me, you know, his article, My President Was Black, about what makes Obama such a unique political figure, says that What's interesting about him is that he is a black man whose experiences with white people were of unconditional love and that that love did not come at the expense of his blackness, that he was encouraged to explore what it meant to be a black man and to embrace that, um, even as the people who were closest to him personally were not black. And that gives him this ability to talk to white people in a way that feels non-threatening, at least to a lot of white people. And, and you can see in his election in Chicago that he's very successful at reaching a certain type of liberal white voter. Um, and he also is a man who has spent time in real black communities, like on the south side of Chicago, and feels comfortable talking to that audience in a way that feels authentic to them too. And um, he, when the Iraq war vote went down, was a state legislature in Illinois. So what was the harm for him of saying he was against the war? You know, you, know, the, you can say, as me and many people did at that time, like, he was right about the war. But you can also say, well, we didn't have a lot to lose, like the way that John Kerry or Hillary Clinton did. But the anger among a lot of people at Hillary Clinton and others for having voted for this war that was to many people, a very obvious disaster from the beginning and since then has proved to be a disaster, gave Barack Obama an opening to step in and seize this moment. Um, and he ends up running against John McCain, uh, another Vietnam War veteran who had run against George W. Bush in the past and was seen as a Republican who was more reform-minded. But the... The momentum is always against 
two term, you know, three terms of the same uh, political party. It was hard. It, it's hard to do that. Um, and the momentum for Obama, given his star power and the particular coalition that he's putting together, is pretty big. And John McCain tries a real Hail Mary and chooses Sarah Palin to be his running mate, which you know, his advisors were really against, and you can view it as a move that was trying to get like Hillary voters who might support a woman. But I think what you should really view it as in the context of what's about to happen to the country is that she is a white working class person who is very direct and proud about the fact that she is against these elite people. She is a populist. Um, sort of like Andrew Jackson. And her like stupidity, her like not having read any newspapers, her like being this person from Alaska who doesn't really understand anything about politics actually plays well for her because it can help fit into this narrative, which you can see from Nixon onward, that's about these like elitist insiders who look down on uneducated people. And now that the United States is in this place where the economy has really failed a lot of uneducated um white folks in the Midwest, the idea of someone embracing that identity and her like talking about hunting in the way that she did um, is actually a political strategy in and of itself. Now, it really backfires on John McCain, I think, in a lot of ways. It, it, it probably ruins some of the feelings that people had towards him as this really principled man. Um, but it should be seen as like a dress rehearsal for something that's going to happen again um, eight years later. So Obama's elected. Remember that? Okay. We're at Obama. Holy shit. We've come so far. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. <laughs> I'm like delirious. Uh, it's, it's, we're in the home stretch now. Oh, man. And he came into office with... A lot of hope. And it's just, he was he, like some people viewed Barack Obama as like a transformational figure ideologically because he was going to be like this true liberal president. But I think the real truth is that he was much more of a transformational figure like symbolically. And I don't want to discredit that. I think it's really powerful all of these things that he represented, you know, as the first black president, as a new generation, as um, a kind of Democrat who, for the first time in 2008, uh, wins the presidency with a coalition that is not, he does not win the white vote. A majority of white people vote for John McCain. So it's also a moment in American history where the country is becoming majority, not majority non-white yet, but enough to elect a president. But in terms of his actual views, he's fairly moderate. Um, and he is a pragmatist who kind of thinks if you get people together and you just, you get people together, you just talk to them, <laughs> just come up with some solutions, we can work together. We're not as divided as people want us to be. The red states and blue states. People, after, you know, part of what made that speech so 
transformational of this man from a legislator to a president in four years um, is that it spoke to Americans' desire for this era of ridiculous division to end. And there was a moment there where for some people, myself included, it seemed like maybe that was going to happen, but a lot of other people, a lot of other people were like, that's not going to happen. And it became clear pretty early into his presidency that Republicans both saw that he had the potential to like really build a new sort of Democratic Party brand and that they needed to stop that. And so very early in Mitch McConnell, who was the Senate um, minority and then majority leader, said that the goal of the Republican Party, the number one goal, was for Barack Obama to be a one-term president. And all their goals needed to go behind that. And so Obama thinks, what's my first priority? I can do one big thing. And some people said it should have been immigration reform. Um, which George W. Bush had tried to do and had gotten kind of torpedoed by his own political party because conservatives who were anti-immigration uh, um, were able to get enough support to stop it in the Senate. Um, some people thought it should be global warming. Um, but he decides to go with the you know dream of every Democratic president since World War II and pass health care. Um, but he decides that what his strategy is going to be is he's going to take, it's a little sort of triangulation, he's going to take the Republicans' health care plan and make it into his plan. Because when uh, the Clintons failed, um, the Republicans put out a plan from a group called the Heritage Foundation, where they, when people were saying, well, if you don't support Bill Clinton's plan for health care, what's your plan? And they said, well, we should keep everything private, and we should have insurance companies um, required to cover everyone, but in return, everyone will have to get health insurance through an individual mandate. Um, and this was not popular with all corners of the Republican Party, but this at one point was the, the normal Republican Party plan. And in Massachusetts, a bipartisan group with Mitt Romney uh, as the Republican governor and a, and a Democrats in the legislature had passed this plan. And so Obama put it forward in part feeling like, well, I'm making a deal with you guys and this is going to, um, of course they'll support it. However, there were also people within the Democratic Party who wanted there to go further than that, who wanted there to be what was called a public option, which was basically, you know, the dream of a lot of uh, liberal or leftist Democrats was a single-payer system like Canada's. Um, and they thought, well, if we could get one part of this Obamacare plan to be like that, then maybe eventually people will see that it works and it could grow. And um, they spent a lot of political energy trying to get this public option, and it became clear that they couldn't get it. And the Republicans tried to block this every step of the way, which was surprising to Obama because he was like, I thought this was your plan and I thought I was going to be able to bring everyone together. But, and this is what Clinton supporters told me in New Hampshire when I was out campaigning for Obama. They said, he thinks that he's just so great that he's going to be able to walk in there and just convince a bunch of Republicans to change their mind. They're coming for him and they're going to get him the same way they went for the Clintons. And that was, uh, I think, a fairly accurate prediction of what occurred. Now you can talk about whether Obama was naive and outside or whether he tried and failed. Um, he succeeded in passing Obamacare, although not the 
plan that he originally wanted. The key to what Obama thought was that by getting the insurance companies to support it and getting the doctors to support it, which had not been the case in these previous attempts, he would be able to get it passed. And he did get it passed, but it took months of the Democrats using every single tactic to you know, push it through. And it became symbolic of Obama himself. People hated Obamacare, who were conservative, even if when you explain to them what it was, the components themselves, a lot of they were fine with. But Barack Obama himself represented a lot of things that made a lot of conservatives really angry. And um, the Tea Party is this organization that emerges two years into Barack Obama's term, sort of like under Clinton two years in after a healthcare battle, the Gingrich folks come in. And the Tea Party says that this is about big government and that they see this healthcare thing as an extension of this you know, huge welfare state that since the New Deal has been you know, ruining the country and making people tied and dependent on government. Um, I, there's also undeniably a racial element to how Obama is viewed. And this whole group of people in the South who have you know, been used to a Republican Party based around Reagan's kind of states' rights, welfare queen rhetoric, and Nixon's southern strategy, um, are really freaked out by this first black president. And the beginnings of what eventually becomes the birther movement exist, where people are questioning whether Barack Obama was actually born in the United States, which no matter how much proof is brought out, people keep raising this question. Now, you're allowed to be president if you're born a U.S. citizen. And John McCain was born in the Panama Canal, but his parents were Americans, and so clearly he's legally an American. And Barack Obama's mom was an American, so if you're born, you'd be an American citizen. So I, I, I've, most legal scholars would say, even if you could prove that he wasn't born in Hawaii where he was, he's still a U.S. citizen, he could still be president. But it's not about that. It's about this feeling of legitimacy for, for this guy. And it starts at the fringes of, of the Republican Party um, with really conservative people from the South raising it, but probably the most prominent person to question whether Barack Obama was born in the United States is this loudmouth real estate developer from New York, Donald Trump. And he is part of this infrastructure that has been built up since the Reagan years, and especially under Clinton, of right-wing media that is on talk radio, is on Fox News, and that has this kind of alternate media infrastructure where people do no longer have to get their news because of cable and because of um, the ability also on the internet to share information. People don't have to get their news from the exact same sources, from the media sources that for years since Nixon have been viewed as liberal. And so Donald Trump grows up as a political figure in that environment. You know, he had, within New York, um, been a um, character for a long time. And nationwide, he had often flirted with the idea of running 
for president. And often he tapped into this kind of anti-trade, anti-immigrant rhetoric that Ross Perot had part of that story. You know, Southern white supremacists had part of that story. Um, but it's interesting to think about whether there's any scenario in which without the first black president, Donald Trump ends up becoming president. Now, in office, Barack Obama, um, after the Republicans take over, has a very hard time passing almost any legislation. So much of his legacy ends up being related to the actions that he takes um, in foreign policy. Uh, he manages to uh, find and uh, have Osama bin Laden killed. Um, he pulls the United States out of Afghanistan and Iraq, although not as quickly as some people wanted, but faster than others did. And then there's questions of like where, sort of all of the Clinton administration, when should the United States intervene in different places around the world? They do intervene in Libya, but they decide not to intervene in Syria. And I think by some measures, the biggest political story of our lifetime is that the Syrian civil war leads to this huge surge of refugees from what used to be a really functioning country into so many parts around uh, parts of the world, both in the region where countries are being destabilized by both refugees and violence, and within Europe where this leads to this rise of like real fear of immigrants, and um, where the rise of ISIS that wouldn't have existed without. Um, both a civil war in Syria and a collapse in Iraq of like a unified government, which you could blame on George W. Bush for invading and taking out Saddam Hussein, or you could blame on Barack Obama for pulling American troops out, um, you know, creates a terrorist group that is in many ways much more frightening than Al-Qaeda um, and is using the internet in a really effective way to spread fear. Um, and that shapes the political climate in which Barack Obama spends his second term. Um, you know, trying to be president when Congress won't let you do anything also leads him to tr figure out what kind of the limits of his executive power are. And he does things like the immigration program, DACA, which are basically, he is saying, well, we have all these immigration laws, we can't enforce all of them. So what if we choose who we're going to target and deport and then make it very clear and open and transparent to everyone what we're doing. Now, in most previous times, like that's something that you would do through a law, through Congress. But there has never been a Congress that was less able to pass things um, than the Congress that Barack Obama has up against him. Or they pass over and over again repeals of Obamacare and then he vetoes them. Um, you know, the climate change deal that he negotiates isn't a bill. It's a treaty that he signs, uh, you know, through careful negotiations with um, countries around the world. The Iran nuclear deal uh, is one that he negotiates without the full support of Congress. So some of these really great actions are both able to be undone by the next president if that person were to turn out to be someone who really disagreed with Obama. And they are part of this long-term trend that we've been tracing all day today of the president taking more and more decisions that traditionally would have been in the hands of Congress or even of international institutions and making them on his own. And I think 
one of the questions going forward about what the Trump presidency is going to look like is to what extent Obama's um, use of executive orders and the only strategies that he had will open up space for Trump to do the same thing. I think we've already seen some of that. Um, Obama wins his second term um, by a slightly smaller margin than he did the first time, but still pretty clearly uh, against Mitt Romney. And, oh, we haven't mentioned the financial crisis at all, but you know the other huge legacy of the Obama administration is that they faced the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression, and that was the result of the deregulation of Wall Street and banks, which happened, I would say, about equally under um, the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. And so some of the, you know, if we're talking about like what are the moments where something could have gone different, I mean, it's also interesting to wonder what the Obama administration would have looked like if it wasn't always happening within the context of this huge financial crash, which they managed through a giant bailout of the banks to kind of blunt some of the impact on the economy as a whole. And, you know, the Obama administration and, and many economists claim that it could have been a lot worse. Um, but even as the economy, the whole economy recovers, um, it recovers in an uneven way where Wall Street and stocks are doing better than ever. But most people's jobs are either Unemployment actually goes down faster than, than it would appear, but people aren't getting as good of jobs as they did before, and wages in the jobs that they do have are pretty stagnant. And now you have an Obama coalition that's Democrats, but no longer really the deep loyalty of working class people who are the traditional Democratic base from FDR all the way onward. And instead, you have this coalition that's like highly educated liberal people in cities and people of color um, against a particular form of corporate business-minded person and evangelical and working-class white people. <laughs>